Alright, hello. Uh, welcome to Adventures Among Ideas. Exploring exciting ideas from the history of intellection, available on video and in audio podcast form. Strap on your semiotic seatbelts because today I'm speaking about Saussure. What is the best way to think about language? This is a, a question that comes up a lot in my own very uh, obviously very exciting work. Um, but where did language come from? Why do we have it? How do we use it? Uh, what do we use it for? Questions like this. So one important resource in answering uh, these kinds of questions for thinking about language, um, one important resource since the early 20th century has been Ferdinand de Saussure's Course in General Linguistics. Now, the Course in General Linguistics, uh, it must be said, is a strange kind of a text. It was not actually written by uh, Saussure. Saussure taught the course on which it was, on which the book was based, uh, three times around the end of his life. Saussure died in uh, 1913. After his death, three of Saussure's students collected as many notes as they could from various other students, I guess, uh, who had attended these courses that he gave on linguistics, and then they edited these notes together into a book form. So the book was published um, 1916, so a few years after Saussure died. Um, but anyway, the the course on general or course in general linguistics is not necessarily what Saussure said or believed, um, but what students heard and what the ed editors thought made sense, I guess. So we might see the book as a collaborative effort between um, between Saussure and between the students and between the editors. Um, Saussure, in kind of the process, Saussure gave some courses about linguistics. His students interpreted what he said in these courses, and then the editors interpreted the students' interpretations, and so you end up with this book. And I mention this just because it's interesting context. I'm not really a Saussure specialist, so how closely the text conforms to Saussure's own, own views doesn't necessarily interest me too much. Uh, I'm interested in the worth and the impact of the ideas that are actually there, not really whether they came from Saussure himself or were inventions of his students. Uh, so, but for convenience, I'll talk about what Saussure says or what Saussure thinks, but just keep in mind that the word Saussure in this context doesn't really refer to an actual person in the normal way that uh, when we talk about the author of a book. Um, so whoever is responsible for the book, I find it to be very useful for thinking about language. Um, and it's a very clear book, especially in the Wade Baskin translation that I'm going to refer to today. Uh, Rereading Parts of it recently, as I have been doing, I found it to be quite lucid, although some, some concepts are tricky to understand. Uh, I want to talk about a couple of things today in connection with Saussure. First is his distinction between language and speech. Language and speech, and I think this is important for reasons I'll get into. And then the second uh, point that I want to make, make is his discussion of the unit of language. What is the actual unit of language? That's a tricky question. Uh, but first, language and uh, speech. So Saussure actually uses three French terms which need to be carefully distinguished. So he uses langage, langue, and parole. 
I'm not really going to focus on the first, langage. So langage is translated by Baskin as speech, I think usually, but it's something more like the faculty of communication or language in general. Long, so L-A-N-G-U-E, is more like a language, a particular system of conventions. For example, English or German or Japanese, a particular system of conventions that allows us to communicate ideas to each other. And parole, um, P-A-R-O-L-E, is usually translated by Baskin as speaking, which is a particular use of language. So we have these uh, two things, language and speaking. Let's try to say more about them. So early on, Saussure defines language like this. He says, it is both a social product of the faculty of speech, or langage, and a collection of necessary conventions that have been adopted by a social body to permit individuals to exercise that faculty. It's a little complicated, but, uh, but anyway, language comes out of our natural need or natural capacity to communicate with each other, which we probably share with many other animals. Um, and it's also the set of conventions that have evolved over time to facilitate or aid or help in this communication. So and what do we mean by a set of conventions? I've been using this term convention. Um, so for, for Saussure, language is a system of distinct signs corresponding to distinct ideas. Now the word sign is just a common word in semiotics that you would hear if you look into the field of semiotics, which means basically a thing that stands for something else. That's just a quick kind of definition of it. Um, for Saussure, the signs of language are sound images, which are connected by social convention with concepts slash ideas. I don't think um, the text really doesn't distinguish between ideas and concepts. So I'll kind of use both of them. Um, some other people would distinguish between, con between concepts and ideas, but we won't worry about that. Uh, when we learn a language, we learn how certain bits of sound, like I'm using now, are associated with certain ideas, such as the sound horse is associated with the idea of the animal horse. Uh, so Sassiur was kind of learning rules for how to associate bits of sound with uh, ideas of things. Saussure is especially famous for his concept of the sign, which consists of a signifier. So his, sign, uh, his concept of the sign is made up of a signifier, which is the sound image, for example, the word horse, and the signified is the other part of the sign. Signifier, signified. Signified is the concept, for example, the idea of a horse. I'll come back to this point about the linguistic sign a little bit later on. Speaking is for Saussure a much more, so speaking as opposed to language, speaking is a much more heterogeneous phenomenon, Saussure tells us. Language is purely social. It exists apart from any particular person. But speaking is social and individual, and it combines the physical, physiological, and psychological. So what this means basically is that there are various acoustic features or phonic features involved um, in speaking or light reflections maybe in the case of visual language like writing and this is a matter of physics right so part of uh, speaking 
is a, a matter of physics and there are uh, then there are also activities of the sense organs and vocal organs and nervous system this is all a matter of physiology and there is the association of a sound image and a concept and this is a matter of psychology so that last part the psychological is where language exists for the individual language is a, a set of conventions linking sound images and concepts and this is assimilated into the psychology of the individual when we learn a language we're um, taking something purely social and making it part of our individual psychology so at least in uh, at least in terms of language the psychology of the individual is something like an individualized version or an individualized variation on or maybe a subset of the social system Right, so individual psychology in this view is kind of a, a variation or a subset of um, the social system. All right, so I, I like um, Saussure's distinction here between uh, language and speaking because it fits nicely with my own view of Morse Peckham's semiotics, which um, kind of underlies a lot of my own work. And this is based on a fundamental bifurcation or split um, between the sign and the sign response. This is a, a split, of course, that we make for convenience of analysis. In actual life, things are all you know, tangled up and smooshed together and whatever. But it's convenient to analyze out the sign, which is something in perception to which a response is appropriate. Uh, and the actual behavioral response, the actual behavior of the response. Uh, at a higher level, Peckham makes a division between culture and society, which is very much related to this. You know, this division between culture and society kind of um, subsumes or categorizes these smaller distinctions between language and speaking or between sign and sign response. Um, so culture is instructions for behavior, what we might call conventions or norms, maybe rules for behavior. And society is what you get when those instructions are followed out with all the inevitable confusions and errors and innovations that uh, naturally occur. Uh, in this way of thinking about culture and society, language is a subset of culture, as I mentioned. So language is instructions for making and using words, while speaking involves following those instructions. So speaking is kind of a subset of society. Uh, language is also a set of norms regulating a certain kind of behavior, like culture. Uh, and when those norms are converted into behavior, you get speaking. Again, kind of uh, an aspect of society. Uh, Saussure uses the helpful example of a symphony. A symphony, say for example, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, uh, is a set of instructions for musicians. When musicians follow those instructions, you get an actual concrete performance of the symphony, which is different, going to be different from every other performance of that symphony. But Beethoven's Ninth Symphony has its own existence as a set of instructions, separate from whether anyone performs it and separate from whether anyone performs it well. Uh, the Ninth Symphony is like a language and a performance of it is like an act of speech and speaking. Uh, speaking, however, as Cecile points out, comes first. Uh, evolutionarily speaking, people started making noises before there were conventions about how to do it. 
probably. Uh, and babies started making noises to get what uh, babies start making noises to get what they need before they learn the language, and they hear other people speaking before they have learned language. So there's a sense in which speaking comes first. When people start to agree that certain noises mean certain things, or you start to learn that certain noises mean certain things, then you get language, which uh, then comes to regulate you know, further behavior. So language and speaking are always interacting and modifying each other. They've got a certain uh, kind of reciprocal interaction and interdependence. Uh, innovations in speaking can affect language conventions, which then in turn uh, change how language speech, uh, how people speak, I should say. <laughs> which change uh, These changes to language conventions then change how people speak going forward. So this is the important distinction between language and speaking. Uh, Saussure wants to focus mainly on language, which can be studied in a more unified kind of way. It doesn't have all these physics and um, you know, physiology and stuff going on. You're just looking at one, something that's kind of on the same level, at least according to Saussure. Uh, so now I want to tr uh, focus on the tricky problem of what is the unit of language. So I've already mentioned that uh, language is a system of signs which bring together, brings together uh, a sound image and a concept, right? So can we be more concrete about what these signs are? Are they, for example, words? Maybe one of the obvious answers. And if so, what exactly is a word? Uh, I find this to be a fascinating problem, something I'm exploring in my own work, and I have my own uh, behavioristic answer to it, which I'll hint at at the end of this. But I want to see where Saussure takes us. So Saussure grapples with this question in chapters on um, linguistic entities and linguistic values, or you know, his editors, of course. So what does he say here? There are a lot of problems with defining a word, as it turns out. So just to take some maybe English examples, of course, he's writing in French. Um, but to take some English examples is ripoff, for example, is that one word or two words? And then again, are rip and ripped one word or two words? Uh, in trying to, to define the unit of language, Saussure takes value to be his key criteria. So he's going to tell us about value and the values that units of language have. And he distinguishes value from signification. With signification, you know, what a sign means, being one part of its total value. Uh, this can get rather confusing. We've got these two things, signification and value, which are kind of related, but not exactly the same thing. Um, but So for example, Saussure compares the value of a linguistic unit to the value of money. The value of a word is what it can be exchanged for, like the value of money is what it can be exchanged for. So the French word mouton has a different value than the English word sheep. Mouton can signify both the animal and the meat from the animal, while sheep signifies only the animal. And there's a separate word mutton that we have for the meat. So the words have partly the same signification, or at least they can have the same signification, but their values are different. So one word, muton, covers more, or has a broader range of utility, perhaps, uh, and the other word, sheep, you know, covers less. So it has a different kind of utility. Another analogy for linguistic value he uses is a street. 
So a street can be completely rebuilt, and yet it's in some sense the same street if it has the same path as before, if it does the same thing. So the essential feature of the street is its uh, particular place in the whole system of streets, not in the actual materials that make it up. Its essential feature is its function as part of a system. So the units of language are like this. They can have various individual existences so long as they perform the same function and are held in the same uh, differential relations, you know, relations of similarity and difference with other units of language. Um, Saussure says that language is a system of interdependent terms in which the value of each term results solely from the simultaneous presence of the others. So a linguistic unit has a certain sound image, as we've talked about, has a certain sound image, which is different from the sound images of other units. And the sound image is connected with a certain idea, and this idea is different from other ideas. So you've got this differential uh, system. Uh, and then the whole unit could be combined in certain ways with other units, which is different from how other units can be combined. So the sound, uh, the sound sheep is different from horse, and the ideas that are connected with those sounds are also different, and they can be combined with other words to make different kinds of sentences. So since the ideas of uh, sheep and horse are relatively close, and they're both kinds of animals, uh, you can use them often in similar sentences. But if you compare, say, sheep and shop, um, although they have more similar sounds, you'll find that they take very different kinds of predicates, for example. You can purchase something from a shop, but not from a sheep, at least in normal circumstances. Uh, this is part of the difference in the values of the words. Shop can go with purchase from, but it can't um, go with sheep or purchase from can't go with sheep. So they have different kinds of values in the system of language. Uh, so linguistic, uh, linguistic units get their values through their relations with other linguistic units. And uh, Saussure tells us that these relations are of two types. There are um, syntagmatic relations and there are associations or associational relations. Did I say that right? Associational? Um, syntagmatic relations are linear. A syntam, S-Y-N-T-A-G-M, S-Y-N-T-A-G-M, is just a sequence of linguistic units that someone might speak, like, I feel tired. That could be a syntam, a sequence of linguistic units. Uh, the words here get their value because of their phonic and especially their functional differentiation. Obviously, the sounds of I feel and tired are different. So the sounds of those three units are different. But I also does something different than feel. They function differently. So I and feel function differently, and they both do something different than tired, which does a different kind of thing when it's put together with those other words. The words have different conventions for being put into a sequence, right? Um, but the units also have associative relations. So the word tired may call up various other words that have similar meanings or even similar sounds. So tired might call up tire, tiring, retire. Um, on the side of meaning, it may call, up, re, uh, may call up words like exhausted, sleepy, and so on. So the value of the unit tired also gets, um, it's also comes into being in relation 
uh, or associative relation to these words, right? So part of the value of um, the word tire, uh, tired, is in relation to other words that are similar in various kinds of ways, or that might get called up. I think he says subconsciously or something like that. And I should add that the syntam as a whole, right, the sequence of words as a whole, gets its value from its syntagmatic or linear relations to other syntams. So I feel tired gets part of its value in relation to syntams that come before it or after it, such as how do you feel, for example. So part of the value of the sequence, I feel tired, is its relation to other sequences, such as how do you feel. And it gets um, the other part of its, of its value from associative relations, which you can think of as other possible responses to a question like, how do you feel? So you could also answer with, I feel great, or I'm exhausted, and um, I feel tired is not one of those. It may be similar to some of them or different from other answers, but it gets its particular meaning, its particular value, I guess, we won't stick with the term value, it gets its particular value from its being a particular, um, having a, you know, being a particular uh, sequence, which is not other sequences, like I feel great. Uh, so you can think of language as having both a, uh, a horizontal and a vertical aspect. And the horizontal aspect is that one, um, the horizontal aspect is that one kind of word has to follow another kind of word when we speak, right? So things have to occur one after the other when we're actually talking. The vertical aspect is that at any particular place in that horizontal chain, various words could be put in that have the right kind of function or could be thought of associate, uh, associatively through uh, other kinds of similarities. So the particular value of a, of a linguistic unit comes, or even a chain of linguistic units, um, comes from both of these aspects. Some people call, uh, by the way, some people call um, associative or vertical relations paradigms to make a better terminological contrast with syntams. You have syntams and paradigms. Um, but I think Saussure actually actually uses the word paradigm in a, a more of a narrower sense as one kind of associative relation, but that's a little bit in the weeds. So to recap, coming to the end here, to recap today, we've talked about the difference between language, which is a system of conventions, and speaking, which makes use of those conventions to communicate ideas in actual situations. And I've mentioned a little bit about how speaking feeds back into the conventions of language to alter them. Uh, we've also talked about the units of language, which are disting distinguished by their phonic characteristics and by their conceptual significations, their sound images and the ideas that those sound images are connected with. So that's how we get the uh, distinguish, uh, distinguished units of language, distinguishable units of language, I should say. Um, a linguistic unit gets its value, the range of things it can do, by virtue of its relations to other linguistic units. And we saw that these relations to other units can be syntagmatic, syntagmatic or linear, or they can be associative slash paradigmatic. So, how useful is all this? Hopefully it's a little useful, but I think there's a lot of uh, useful resources here for thinking about language. And actually, I don't think there's anything I fundamentally disagree with. I would, um, I would just put the whole thing in a different framework. I think if you, um, I think you, in my 
view of language, you first have to explicitly recognize language as conventions governing a kind of behavior. And this behavior is directed at getting um, people to do something. So when we talk, we're trying to get people to do something, even if it's just, if, even if it's just ourselves. Uh, so when you do this, you can see why the primary linguistic units are not conventional gr grammatical units like words or sentences. Um, and you could call them sentences, but I find this a little misleading. So what I argue in my writing anyway is that the primary units of language are speak, uh, speech act types or illocutionary act types. These are technical terms in philosophy of language that refer to things like making a promise, showing agreement, um, asking a question, issuing a command, describing some situation, and so on. So I think these are the primary units of language, and they're differenti differentiated from each other by their behavioral consequences. They lead to behavioral consequences. When we uh, make a command, people do different things than when we ask a question, right? Other units, such as words, get their particular values by how they function within these uh, speech act types, by how, by how they help these um, speech act types or illocutionary act types work. Um, anyway, this behavioral theory of language was developing at about the same time as Saussure, but mostly in the two or so generations after him. And I'll uh, try to talk about bits of this more behavior-based tradition in future episodes. But that is all I wanted to bite off and chew on today. So thanks for listening. Subscribe, strike, shalala, whatever. And uh, until next time, keep adventuring.